This is Environment Matters with John Anderson, featuring Emma Zalkman, Sam Coggins and Harry Campbell-Ross from the Crawford Fund. Well, today's conversation is one with a difference. I've got three terrific young Australians who all work in the area of agricultural research. Now, for many years, I've been involved with the Crawford Fund, uh, which is the science says here is dedicated to a food secure world, making sure that people are fed and fed properly. Australia's punched way above its weight in a remarkable international story that not many people understand. Despite the rapid growth in global population to well over 7 billion, many, many more people now are fed adequately or even overfed. And those who are malnourished or undernourished and tragically still some stunted children are still too many, but they're much lower proportionally than they have been in the past. Lifespans have doubled, educational standards are lifting. In many ways, it's a story that we overlook, uh, but it's really important, I think, to say and to celebrate the fact that without slackening off, Australia's played a great role uh, in that outcome. But there's a lot of work still to do. There are big constraints, everything from uh, concerns over uh, environmental issues such as uh, fertiliser use, uh, land availability, uh, land quality, water, uh, changing climates. If these things are to be adequately confronted and challenged and dealt with for good outcomes, it's going to depend very, very heavily uh, on our gifted scientists going forward. And to have three young people here who have been supported by the Crawford Fund and are all uh, participants in uh, the uh, Researchers in Agriculture for International Development, known as RAID, uh, is absolutely fantastic to have them all here. And I'll introduce them and, uh, one by one, ask them to say something about their work and their passion. So I'll start on my far left as I sit here in front of the camera. Uh, Harry Campbell-Ross is a graduate research officer in livestock systems. Correct. Uh, is involved with the Australian Centre for Agricultural International Research. Uh, and that body punches really effectively internationally. We're one of the big seven. There are six nations and Bill and Melinda Gates. Yeah. Lifting people out of poverty Correct. through international agricultural research. Uh, but you're a graduate of Sydney University. Tell us a bit about your passions as an agricultural scientist. Um, well, I guess I, I'm not from a farming background, so I, um, I saw sort of or foresaw what was going to happen in the future with, with food security and how it's going to get tighter as climate as the constraints coming from climate change increase. So I signed up for an, for an ag degree at Sydney and, and went in with a very open mind and um, part of my way through I, I thought that development was where the most impact can be had and where you'll have the biggest impact on the global food system. So that's what brought me, um, essentially brought me, to, brought me to here, brought me to ACR. Terrific. Well, we'll come back with a lot of issues there, including those constraints and what we can do about them. Absolutely. So, Emma, you're from Melbourne and you're a graduate uh, uh, of the University of Sydney as well, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And animals are your big thing. Yes. Um, I grew up in Melbourne and I trained as a veterinarian, but I've spent most of my career working in livestock health for development. Um, I feel really passionately about the contribution of livestock to, to people's livelihoods, both in developing and, and developed countries. Terrific. And uh, Sam, you come from near Canberra. Your family are involved in beef production. And one of the things we'll end up talking about, I'm sure, is the role of meat in our diets, uh, particularly in uh, young people having 
some interesting views in that area. But Sam, tell us about your work and your passions. Yeah, I'm, I'm really obsessed with soil science and I really love working with farmers on how to put out fertiliser at the, the best possible time, ensuring it goes into the plant and increases yields instead of going to the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. So that's what I'm obsessed with, working with farmers on fertiliser timing. Hmm. Well, can I just ask each of you to comment on a, on a general issue? One of the things that concerns me is that there are big, big challenges for all of us, whether we think of ourselves as Australians or global citizens or what have you. And there's an air of pessimism in many quarters. You know, we're not going to be able to do it. We're all headed for catastrophe on various fronts. Can I just ask you, you see the challenges. Are you optimistic or pessimistic or do you think uh, you're realists who want to steer a middle course? Um, I think I swing. Probably the average would be I'm probably a realist that goes through the middle, but um, I can be optimistic on some days when I see some things and I can see other things that give me humongous optimism. So it really, really probably sits in the middle, but it varies widely, I think. How about you, Emma? I'm optimistic about the future, um, mainly because of what we've seen in the last couple of years with the younger generations. And by younger generations, I mean people a lot younger than myself. Some of the kind of activism that's gone on at schools with, with people like Greta Thornburg and really standing up and, and telling our leaders that we want action on these issues, that, that makes me feel very optimistic. The other thing that makes me feel optimistic is, is some of the talent we've got in Australia to, to address some of these, these challenges. We're such an educated country, um, we've got a lot to offer. And I think the other thing that makes me really optimistic about these challenges is all the advances in technology. I think in the last couple of years especially, there's been so many innovations that, have, that, that are going to contribute to, to strengthening our food systems in the future if we can just capitalise on those. Yeah, absolutely share the optimism of Harry and, and Emma, of course. And um, yeah, like who, who really knows if we can feed the world, we can't feed the world, will, will the world starve? Nobody knows. Um, but if we don't bust the gut, if we don't take that optimistic approach and really try hard to do it, then of course uh, it won't lead to a positive outcome. So yeah, really, really share the optimism of Harry and and am I, yeah, just really busting your gut to try and make it happen? Well, the good news in a way is to say uh, our record, as I touched on a moment ago, has been pretty amazing because when I was your age, as a proportion of a then quite a bit smaller global population, there were many more people starving or malnourished. As a proportion, we've got around 800 million today who still don't have enough to eat and 50 million children who are stunted, which is truly tragic. But we need to remember we have made progress and when I was young, there were deep concerns too. Everybody thought it was the age when they thought nuclear war would decimate everything. But people didn't give up. So I think that's really important. But let's come to a big elephant in the room straight up. Agriculture uh, is responsible for something like 28, 29%, it's estimated, uh, of global emissions from paddock to plate, uh, including, of course, that consumer mile at the end. Australians make... 5.3 motor car trips on average to the supermarket to buy stuffs every week. Of course, that's a big part of that story. But what do we do about agriculture's extraordinary dependence on fossil fuels in, uh, and, and the resulting emissions? Any thoughts? I defer to the soil scientists here to tell us, <laughs> to tell us something. Um, yeah, we don't absolutely. talk much about soils, do we? No, not enough. No, 
No, it's um, it was the international year of soils last year. It was a great year, but yeah, we have to keep keep the conversation going. And yeah, because yeah, as you said, agriculture is it's such a, a villain in climate change. It contributes so much greenhouse gas emissions, but then it's, it's also such a victim of climate change. People talk about polar bears, but people don't talk about um, farmers as much. And like you, I imagine John, I was on Christmas Day hand feeding cattle with my dad, and it really sucks. And then I go overseas working with farmers in Myanmar, and probably the worst. Worst moment in my short career was sitting across the table from this rice grower in Myanmar and he said, what you're doing with fertiliser is really nice, but my real problem is I don't know when to plant my rice anymore because the monsoon season has become so unpredictable. And he asked me, when do we plant our rice now? And I had to look him in the eye and tell him, I don't know. Nobody knows because the climate is becoming so unpredictable and increasingly so. And so, as you said, there are so many opportunities for us to to not only mitigate climate change through agriculture, but then also adapt to climate change through agriculture. So what we're doing with farmers in Myanmar is ensuring you put out fertiliser at that best possible time to ensure it gets sucked up by the plant and improves farmers' yields, improves farmers' incomes, and at the same time doesn't get sucked into the atmosphere and causes the climate change that causes you and I to be hand-feeding cattle. Because I'm sure you don't want to be hand-feeding cattle every, every Christmas day, and, and I don't want to be either. A bit of historical perspective is probably important, though. And this is really important, this debate. This is not new in Australia. Uh, I'm sixth generation farmer. And as I go back through the family records, there have been some equally bad times before we were worried about climate change. My point out of that, I think, is to say, actually, we in Australia are very good at being flexible and being adaptive. And as my children would say on the land, we've got to stop farming against the environment and farm with it. So I just make the point that you're at the cutting edge of an Australian farming system and its knowledge bank, which has been very good at dealing with variability. Can I throw something else into the mix though? What we need to also pick up about farming though is that we are not linear producers of carbon. We're recyclers and reusers of it as well. Can we absorb more carbon into our soils? And can that be part of the solution? I'd welcome all of your views on that. I think you know, globally, farmers are the major land holder and we're the ones who affect the land more than anyone. So I think if anyone's going to make a positive change to, to soil carbon and, and, and um, sequestered carbon in the world, it's, it's definitely going to be farmers. It's not going to be the national parks or, or folk in the city. It's, you know, the, the land users, it's the farmers. And I think we need to, we really need to stop um, labelling agriculture as the bad guy because we, we have this growing population, that's, that's reality of the situation, and everyone in that population needs to eat and they all need to eat a nutritious diet. So the question becomes not is agriculture good or bad, it's how can we do it better? And that's what doing science in, in agricultural science is, is all about. And I see that in, in my work as a veterinary epidemiologist working with livestock, which often gets blamed for its, its contribution to, to emissions, the question becomes not how do we not eat any livestock because we know how important it is for people's nutrition to get micronutrients and we know how import, what an important source of micronutrients animal source foods are. But the question becomes how do, we, how do we eat less but also how do we be more efficient in the way that we farm, farm livestock? And, and one of those ways is to control disease and that's that's kind of what I do in my in my job. I think it's a really important area moving forward. So yeah, let's, let's drill into this for a moment longer. Uh, um, many young people would say, well, part of the answer is to eat less meat. But I would actually argue that 
done properly in many landscapes, not all, but in many landscapes, the careful use of livestock can actually see them promoting the active cycling of grass and pasture. It's growth, which absorb carbon. It's careful eating off. So it try, the plants try to vigorously recover, absorb more carbon, and perhaps put more into the soil. But we're in the hands of the scientists. As a, as a farmer, am I right? Is it, is it likely, do you think, that we can find farming practices, including animal and pasture managements, that uh, will absorb more carbon? And can that be part of the solution? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The, um, yeah, so as you said, the soil stores so much carbon. It stores three times more carbon than the world's forests. And so there's such an opportunity there to sequester carbon in the soil, not just to mitigate climate change, but then also improve agriculture productivity and agriculture resilience. And grazing systems do store a lot of carbon. They, some grasses have been found to, the grazing systems actually store as much carbon as, as a forest does because it brings in so much carbon at such a rapid rate. Uh, one concern that with that though is often the grassland sequesters more carbon and then it just sort of sits at a stable level. It doesn't continually suck more and more carbon. It sort of stays at a stable level. And so the, the livestock continue to emit every year, but the, the soil carbon often stays at a stable level. And so one of the challenges for scientists and agriculture scientists and farmers is to learn how to, how to get that level up, how to increase the carbon storage in the soil. Um, and yeah, and it is more nuanced than, than plants good meat bad. And, and in some ways, livestock will always emit greenhouse gas emissions, but that's sometimes a trade-off that we have to work with. For example, meat is such a nutrient-dense form of food Emma talked about micronutrients earlier, which is so crucial for farmers' livelihoods in Australia and in developing countries. So, yeah, really trying to make that narrative a bit less um, demonising of, of livestock and livestock producers is pretty crucial to make the conversation a productive one, not really a, a destructive one. An interesting reflection on this debate is that I'm told that over 80% of Americans who stop eating meat for climate change concerns, out of climate change concerns, give up within 12 months. They can't do it. We do like our meat, apart from it being good and important for a nutritional point of view. Yeah, and I think we have to recognise as well that humans are omnivores. So that's actually the way that our, that our gut is designed. So even though there, there is no doubt that a lot of people probably eat more than their fair share of meat, if everyone in the world converted to that kind of vegan diet, that wouldn't be the optimal solution either because when we convert to, to vegetarian or vegan diets, we actually need to consume a lot more. So we need to use more of the world's resources quite aside from the, from the carbon emissions. So we're looking at things like um, more use of, of water. We're looking at things like more use of nitrogen and phosphorus when we move to those plant-based diets. So I think it's important that while we can potentially reduce the amount of meat in our diet, it's definitely not the solution for everyone to do that. And there's, there's, a, there's a good, well-established body of research on that um, in relation to kind of carrying capacity of different diets in different agricultural setups. Um, and also this concept of planetary boundaries that that um, greenhouse gas emissions isn't the only thing that we have to that we have to concentrate when we're talking about um, sustainability in the future. We have to look at the other limited resources of the earth as well, things like phosphorus and nitrogen. Harry, food security is a great interest of yours. Yeah. Well, I just kind of want, I want to echo what Emma said. Um, absolutely, 
in in it's it's more, a lot more much more nuanced argument than saying all meat is bad. Like like Sam said, I mean, in, in the developing world, we buy per capita we eat too much meat, and that's it's not good. We need, we do need to reduce it, but in many other contexts, some of us find that a tough proposition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's again, it's more nuanced. You know, um, red meat three, four, five times a week is unsustainable in as a as a diet, but you cannot absolutely cut it out of your system because that's very that's you can be under, undernourished. But in in places where <clears throat> instead of the hundred kilos or whatever it is of meat that we eat per person in Australia, they eat twenty when you need fifty or whatever it is. Um, those undernourished kids and those undernourished people are going to be less productive. They're going to be able to go to they won't be as like productive at school. And the flow-on effects from being undernourished is going to cost so much more. To the climate, in the in the fact that they won't be as productive global citizens um, compared to someone who is like like, us, like ourselves here, very well nourished. Um, so food security is a it's a it's a you know multifaceted sort of problem, and um, it's not to be one one silver bullet at all that will fix fix uh, food security. It's been an ongoing and evolving problem. One of the things that encourages me is that we're doing more with less now. So a, a, a litre of agricultural uh, water, irrigation water, now goes a great deal further than it did several generations ago. For example, I think even in here in Australia, I think a, a litre of rice, a water used in rice now grows twice as much rice as it did two decades ago. So that's science. And Australians have been very, very good at it. That's why in many ways, the future of this whole debate about food security and the environment lies in the hands of young Australians like you. But can we continue that relentless march towards doing more with less, in your view? Yeah, absolutely. I reckon, but I disagree a little bit with the framing where the, the, the increasing water productivity in Australian agriculture is nuts. It's something to be really excited about. But it's not just science. It's also innovation from farmers and innovation from agronomists. And really, the, what I would see it is scientists and farmers working together to realise that, that benefit. And if we continue to do that and do it even better, then, yeah, I think that there's enormous opportunities to continue to increase that productivity. Well, how could I take issue with your disagreement? Because I'm a farmer. <laughs> I'm a farmer. And Australian yeah. farmers, it actually varies quite a bit from industry to industry, actually. But a lot of Australian agricultural industries have been unbelievably quick to uptake new technologies and, in fact, to invest in. The Australian farmers invest heavily in science. Um, but, but Harry, uh, this raises a very interesting question. I think you have an interest in agricultural extension. You think that making information available and modelling new techniques and taking new science out into the field is a critical part of food security, if I understand? I do. I, have, I guess I don't, I, don't have an ex, I don't have much experience in extension. I haven't been an extension officer, nor have I, I studied it. It's more of a philosophical um, interest in that I think the, the availability of impartial uh, advice to farmers is it should it should be you know almost next next to a human right. Um, if people come in from a sales or an economic perspective, say, oh, you should buy my pesticide over another, when it may not be the best one to use, I think that is really damaging because people will listen to that. So I think the reason Australian farmers are so good at what they do is because they can make an informed decision. They can say, I know the you know that I've got. X pest and I've got a number of pesticides I can use. I'm not going to pick one company over another because I'm friends with so you know the salesman's wife. I'm going to just I'm going to pick the best one for my for my problem. Um, 
So I think usually that in most cases that is a government extensionist, but in Australia we have independent um, extension services that the farmers pay for, and they will take a, you know, a, a very context-specific and um, impartial view of, of the availability for solving problems, and I think that's absolutely important. It's very interesting um, uh, that back in the days when I was responsible for agriculture in government, we started a program called then Farm Biz, uh, and it meant that accredited high-quality providers of agricultural education uh, could do courses or provide courses and then offer some money back to farmers. Some of those courses are quite expensive. Farmers took to it with great alacrity. Uh, one of those courses, uh, I understand it, 7,000 Australian farmers or farm businesses have, have undertaken the school um, offered by one of those providers, which is extraordinary. So there's a great hunger for information, but there are often big cultural factors involved as well. The Green Revolution in India went nowhere until the scientists started talking to the women because the women were the change agents. They could see the advantage of better food security and high quality diets for their children. And the Green Revolution took off and you saw this incredible explosion in the quality of, uh, of, of food and nutrition that revolutionised much of Asia. So cultural factors can be very important. And getting that information out there is one thing. You've then got to get people to pick it up. That's the challenge. That's the challenge of the extension community is to, is to package it in a way that is understandable and exactly speaking to the change agents that you know, will actually put these things into use. Yeah, and I think part of the solution as well to, to make that happen is changing from working for farmers to working with farmers. So it was a mistake that we made the first time we went to Myanmar. We went there to help farmers with their fertiliser practices to take the science to the farmers. And we sat down with them and gave them a prototype fertiliser recommendation and they threw it back in our faces and said, this is silly for X, Y and Z. Um, and so then that was quite a humbling experience in a really good way, gave you a spoonful of humility and really ensuring that that extension is done with respect of farmers' knowledge and respect of farmers' priorities and their cultures is so crucial from the outset to make sure that work is effective. Did you find that they were uh, that that uh, the advent of the, the internet and modern communications has made a big difference? That many farmers in the third world now have access to a simple phone. Yeah, it's not it's not even a simple phone, a smartphone. So yeah. one of the reasons why I work in in Myanmar, a place which one it used to be in the ten poorest countries in the world, and it was a place where a lot of Australian prisoners of war went to build railways in World War Two. It's now where 80% of the farmers there have their very own smartphone. They might have two or three hectares, they're below the poverty line, and they have a, a smartphone in their top pocket. It's nuts. And it's such an opportunity to share information between farmers and with farmers. So, And they can check the market reports. And they can, Absolutely. People can make touch with them and say, I want 50 kilos of whatever it is. Yeah, and, and it's such a need there because in Myanmar, to be real, there's one government agronomist for every 500 farmers and often... The, the agronomist doesn't get petrol in their motorbikes to get out to the farmers. And so there is such a dearth of information services for farmers and the advent of the internet and the penetration of mobile phones and mobile networks, the mobile network access is a lot better than in rural Australia. Mm. In a lot of these developing countries is yeah, such an opportunity for farmers to not only access information, access financial services, access markets, access inputs. It's a really transformative thing that will really support food security and poverty alleviation and climate change mitigation all around the world. 
Exciting, Emma. I think it's. I think the smartphone thing's really interesting. I think it is. I, I um, agree with Sam. I think it's transformative in in the developing world, particularly. But I think sometimes what we miss is we focus on the technology and we miss the people part of that technology. So you can give someone a smartphone, you can give someone an app, but you can't make them use it. You can give people advice, just like you can give people a paper booklet, you can now give that to them in a, in a smartphone app, but it's what they do with that that makes the difference. And I think that's, that's where it's really important to engage kind of these social scientists. And we touched on it, touched on it before with extension. I think there's this, slow um, momentum of the of the important role of, of social science in, in transforming agriculture and, and you touched on it before in India that that in order for that green revolution to take place somebody had to identify who the change agents were and it probably wasn't an agricultural scientist because we're very focused on the and I know as a veterinarian I'm very focused on the kind of the very um, technical aspects of, of animal health and, and physiology and sometimes we miss the, the bit that makes it all happen and that's the people part. So I think social science is, a, is really important and will continue to be really important if we're going to transform this food system into the future and, and really capitalise on this technology that we've got. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure you're right. And of course, at, at, in the later stages of life, you'll be lined up to join things like the Crawford Fund so that you can pro bono, I might add, <laughs> go and help make that information and that knowledge and that expertise available to people in other parts of the world. You've been doing it already, which is quite fascinating. Emma, can we come back to your role and interest in biosecurity in, in animals? Yeah. Um, again, many people are now concerned, I think people are very interested in the West about what they eat as well as how it's produced. Yeah. The debate about... Um, there are two broad issues I'd be interested in your views on. One is Australia is seen as clean and green. It's very important to keep it that way. The second related issue is in the sort of um, intensive versus organic approach, if you like. I always worry about the organic approach. You know, if I've got a, you know, a, a really bad flu or something, I, 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 I want a shot of penicillin or something to help me get better. And, and I worry that we ought to be able to do the same for our livestock when they're not well, but that immediately has implications if you're trying to sell organic produce. Yeah. Any comments in those areas there? Keeping Australia clean and green and how do we manage the fact that sometimes we need to give our animals, just as we give ourselves, you know, some pretty tough medicines? Yeah. I think our clean and green image is really important. It's, it's really important to, to trading partners. It's really important to our farmers because they want to be able to sell their, their produce overseas. And it's very important to consumers, not just domestically, but now obviously we're seeing that, that the Chinese market, for example, is, is when we look at kind of the things that have happened with baby formula and, and things like that, um, they're really valuing that, that clean and green image. And so I think that's something we need to preserve. Um, also, apart from it just being an image, it's, it's also of great benefit to our health if, if the, for example, the food that we're eating doesn't have antimicrobial residues in it, for example. Now that's quite a different issue to organic versus intensive farming. My main issue with the organic production of livestock is that it will not feed the world um, and we, we're going to need to feed more people and we can't do that on organic systems. So whilst it's very nice for people to go along to their organic market on a Saturday and, and feel like they're really doing something 
good for the globe, I, I challenge that concept because we need, as we've discussed earlier, we need to produce more with less resources and I don't think organic production is, is the answer to that. Um, in terms of what you raised about treating, treating animals that are sick, that's, that's also a concern with, with organic systems. When, when animals have bacterial diseases, just like with humans, we, we need to treat those, those bacterial diseases. But it does, it, it, there is a challenge around this definition of what's organic and, and what's not, because there are farming systems that are organic, but when animals are sick, they, they are still treated with, with antimicrobials. And I think there's also a bit of a misconception that if you eat food that's not organic, for example, meat that's not been raised in an organic uh, situation, then you're somehow eating antimicrobials. And I think people, the average consumer doesn't understand that, that um, all medications have a withholding period and that's the period after which the animal cannot go to slaughter for market. And that's to prevent antimicrobials being in the human in the human food chain. And that's very tightly controlled in Australia. So animals are tested for residues. And if an animal does have a residue that exceeds a certain limit, that, that, that animal will be traced back to the farm and it will be traced back to the veterinarian as well. So, so I think this, this misconception that if we, eat, if we eat meat that comes from a non-organic setting that it's filled with antimicrobials in an Australian context just isn't true. This question of uh, the, the extraordinary technological advances in agriculture is probably often misunderstood. Uh, agriculture is very high tech. There's a lot of science behind it uh, and there's a lot of uptake of that scientist, science. Um, we do see now uh, some fairly emotional debates in agriculture. One of them would be around the question of uh, genetic modification of course, it's widespread now in this country in terms of things like the cotton industry and has had a dramatically positive environmental outcome. No one can argue with it. The case is overwhelming. The reduction in the use of pesticides, for example, because of the use of genetically modified, naturally pest-resistant strains of cotton has meant that a whole lot of agricultural chemicals are simply not needed. But more generally, there's been a lot of emotion and it's been hard to get to hear what the scientists really say about GM and its role in feeding people and looking after the environment. Can I just throw it open to you to any views that you might have? Um, I might start first, that's okay. Um, I think the scientific community was quite slow on the uptake of, of describing what they're doing in more detail to the public. And so perhaps what well, started, I think, with misinformation is sort of snowballed and then now you can see um, labels on your food that say anti-GMO, no GMO, and GMO is just bad across the board, and it's ne and something's never that simple. Um, so GMO or gene editing is, I mean, in a way we've been gene editing since we started agriculture. Domestication in, in itself is selecting genes that you find preferable over others. That's corn shouldn't look like a big, beautiful yellow cob full of ears. It should be this little thing, this big with 12 ears, and they're covered in hard seed coatings. Um, but we edited their genes over many generations through breeding to bring them to what we have today. So gene editing is, is rather skipping those 
thousands of generations of people picking the genes that they want and just picking them ourselves. It's more nuanced than that. You can insert genes and you can turn them off or, and things like this. But, but, we, but in, in, a, in a nutshell, we've been gene editing for a long time. And I think um, the, the hype around it isn't well informed. And I think it's our job as, as agricultural scientists, as food scientists, to, to tell people what is really going on and, and, and give, them, give them an informed view and so they can make an informed decision on their eating habits. Yeah. I reckon Harry's bang on there where genetic modification and gene editing, they're just such amazing tools. It can be used to do so much good in agriculture, so much good for farmers and for the environment and for people that depend on farmers as well. Um, I think something that's so unfortunate is that these technologies get caught up in this narrative around big businesses and like Monsanto profiting from this technology. Um, whereas a lot of the genetic modification and gene editing is not done for fat cats at Monsanto, it's done for for farmers and for consumers, for example, golden rice. It's this rice that's been genetically modified to naturally contain vitamin A. And that is such a crucial thing in, in developing countries where more than 250,000 kids go blind every single year as a result of vitamin A deficiency. And so this is a technology, not for the fat cats at Monsanto, but for the people that are malnourished and, and really depend on agriculture and farmers. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because there are many areas where people have enough food, but they're missing critical trace elements. Think Bangladesh, for example. Uh, so they eat a lot of rice, but it, 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 it doesn't provide what they need for good eyesight. Mm. And so here's a scientific solution. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? A couple of issues that arise out of that. Emma, you might comment on um, uh, genetic modifications on the animal side of farm production is a bit different, isn't it? Because it's actually much slower to, um, uh, you know, improve the breeding of yep. livestock and to get better outcomes than it is with crops. Yeah, and look, I'd echo Harry's point. That's something that I've never quite understood about the reaction, the public reaction to GMO, and that's that we have been. Um, genetically modifying our food for since the beginning of agriculture by selecting and, and the same goes for livestock. We, we select the cows that make the most milk and we get rid of the ones that don't make much milk, right? And over many generations, we end up with these great cows in Australia that, that are very high producers of milk. And, and what GMO does is it, it, is it skips those many, many years in between, but it's essentially doing the same thing. So I think a lot of it's kind of a, a, sign, a science communication problem, really. Mm. There's two issues that arise that, that, uh, out of that then for me. One is we're constantly told that globally governments are not putting enough effort into agricultural research. And as a subset of that, uh, they're not graduating or not ensuring we have enough graduates in agricultural science, which is your field. Are there enough of you and is it attractive and interesting enough for you to want to pursue a very important field of uh, research? Yeah, so much. Yeah, I, I think it's so tragic that there's a, a stigmatisation that surrounds agriculture careers where when I said I was going to go and study agriculture at Sydney Uni, my mates laughed at me and they said, oh, you're going to go learn how to um, put on gumboots and build scarecrows um, and it's such a misunderstanding of what agriculture careers really are and it's so sad because Australian agriculture misses out on talented young Australians and talented young Australians miss out on agriculture where um, yeah and so I think breaking down that stigmatization of agriculture careers is so crucial for, for young people and helps them ac access careers that are not only very fulfilling where you can contribute to things that you really believe in but then also careers where you can access so much variety 
if you study agri if you study dentistry you've got to become a dentist for the rest of your life but if you study agriculture you can go into research you can go into policy you can become a farmer you can be an agronomist you can become a social scientist there is no end to careers variety in agriculture careers and it's such a message that needs to get out there I'd like, yeah, I'd like to echo sorry, what Sam said, you know, when you tell people you're studying agriculture, you go, oh, so you're a farmer. You go, no, 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 I'm an agricultural scientist. Um, and it's always get that that response. But what I don't know, it was but when you guys studied ag, but for me, in my year, it was very well split between half city kids and half kids that had come from the country and half men and women, which I thought was wonderful. Um, but also, um, I picked it also because I studied biology and I loved it. I, did other subjects at school, but if you're if you're someone who who loves biology, agriculture is effectively applied biology, and so you get to look and you get to make you not only you get to look at biology and you're not a botanist, so you don't pick apart an obscure orchid from Nepal or something. You actually get to look at things that make a difference in people's lives and you get to you get to use that knowledge and for for a good. So I honestly I can't can't um, oh, recommend a. a, a a career or at least just studying agriculture university more it was it was wonderful wonderful experience i had a slightly different experience veterinary science is is very popular amongst young people amongst high school leavers it always will be there's con they're constantly opening up new places but i guess the problem in veterinary science is um, a lot of veterinarians can't see beyond a career in in practice and they can't see where where their skills can contribute to these kind of global bigger bigger world problems and so I was really fortunate studying my master's at the University of Sydney that had kind of a more a more global focus and I think it's really important that in those more vocational degrees you mentioned dentistry I don't know I don't know if that's the same but in those more specific vocational degrees I think it's important that that young people within those degrees are also exposed to to broader applications for their for their knowledge because I I certainly know that um, I feel like I'm I'm using my skills to, to great effect on a global level with what I'm doing now. And I, I wish that more veterinarians could, could see themselves engaging in some of these issues of food security and, and global health security as well, because they've got a lot of skills to offer. There's an old Chinese saying that if you love what you do, you don't, you don't have to go to work. If you love your work, you don't, you know, it's never a chore. Um, it's fantastic to hear your enthusiasm for what you do and that and to recognise a part of that enthusiasm is that you know you can make a big difference in people's lives. Tell me one thing, you're all young Australians, um, I touched on it earlier, it seems to me to be very important. No one disputes that we face big challenges. What worries me though is that it's very easy for feelings to swamp thinking. Now in science you have to think, that's what you do. And you have to find the facts as I understand it, I'm not a scientist respond to the evidence, draw logical conclusions, and then try and see them taken up. It just worries me at the moment that there's almost a sort of sense of overwhelming doom will all be ruined, said Hanrahan, uh, climate change is going to kill us. Now, how do we convert concern for the future into a positive sense of we're going to challenge this and, 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 and overcome? In other words, how do we turn the concern into practical, workable, hope-filled solutions? I think the first thing anyone should do is go to Hans, Ros Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness. Yes. That 
that was a real eye-opener for me because you're often here of the, the rhetoric in, in media and whatever is there's been a bombing here or there's a famine in such and such but you don't hear about oh you know a whole bunch of Malaysian kids went to school and got there fine and had a great day you don't hear about the the, the people that are you know there's nothing happening um, and so that book really highlights the, the positivity and the optimism that you started started this whole piece with is that a lot less people are, mal, are malnourished and the, you know, a lot more people are going to school and and it's it's almost we're almost there in having all uh, the same amount of boys and girls finishing year 12. that's amazing isn't it and it's not it's not it's never highlighted but mostly it really the be. girls now nearly all of our kids globally are getting a much better education than we think and the gap between what the boys and girls are getting, it's, there's still a gap, but it's closed massively. The trend Absolutely. lines are really good. Absolutely. Now, in a way, it highlights what I'm trying to say because he's trying to say, look, we can allow ourselves to self-loathe and to say we're terrible and we've destroyed ourselves and we've destroyed our planet. But actually, all these amazing things have happened and people everywhere, their life expectancies have been doubled. Um, uh, opportunities have been increased. An incredible amount of that has come out of the sort of work that you and your predecessors have been responsible for. And if we're to continue that in the future, we've got to not only stay positive, we've got to continue to believe in ourselves and not get into this sort of absolute self-loathing that's starting to characterise a lot of the, the, the international debate or, or the Western debate, let me put it that way. Uh, and. Um, I just think that um, it's so important that we look at what we have achieved and say, let's build on that. It's since time immemorial, since Malthus, we've told ourselves everybody's going to starve and we're all going to be ruined and it hasn't happened. 1850 something, wasn't that? Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think I have to disagree with you in that we are facing unprecedented challenges and, and science is the, the source of this self-loathing or the source of this um, concern amongst really young people is from scientists. They're, they've listened to the science and perhaps they don't fully understand it because a lot of them are very young, but they've listened to the scientists and they're, they're asking for action. And now the scientists have to come back in. And as you say, they have to turn that into evidence-based actions. But I wouldn't really see that kind of activism as, as self-loathing. I would, I would see it more as a positive thing that they're, they're drawing attention to something that, that scientists have, have put out as an issue in, in the first place. Yeah. Well, let me push, if I could just push back yeah, for a moment. Sure. Sure. Um, Hans Rosling would say it's largely the result of Western scientific knowledge and extension, the thing you talked about, uh, and indeed of capitalism, of markets starting to work. Now, you go on to a lot of Australian university campuses and defend democratic capitalism, and you might as well put a target on your back. You're just going to get hit all over the head. And I think part of my point is, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that's part of what I'm trying to say. I actually still think that sound research, I'm just, I'm testing your yeah, reactions. Yeah. No, no, that's okay backed by extension, which is what you're talking about, taking that out there and giving people market opportunities so that a farmer and his family can profit if they can produce a little extra and shock horror, sell it for a profit and start to lift themselves out. The solutions in many ways, tough as they may be in face of the enormous challenges we face, remain with us not losing our head about what has worked in the past when we've had challenges, if I can put it that way. I think if you want to talk about the past, there's often very vocal but quite a small minority of university goers who are going for the 
Marx's planned economy. We know it doesn't work. We've tried it in tens of countries all over the world and almost every continent, um, and it's never worked. So I, don't, I think they're planning for an idealistic planned economy, but we know that doesn't work because look where we are now. Um, all the planned economies have either failed, like the Soviet Union, or have moved to a liberalized economy like China and Vietnam and, and, and a lot of still communist countries. Um, so I think the market absolutely not only has a place because it does a lot of good things, but it's kind of, as Winston Churchill put it, it's the worst system except for all the others. Mm. I mean, you know, open laissez-faire economics would be an absolute disaster. You've got to corral it, you've got to have the right rules, the right regulations and what have you. But nonetheless, I still think it's a potent vehicle for helping in the current. Because yeah, oh, you're right, Emma. I don't don't hear me saying that I don't think the challenges are enormous. Yeah, I, and I, I really don't do. think capitalism is at all the enemy. I mean, I think we know that um, that capitalism has, has brought a lot of people out of out of poverty, and and we've had this incredible growth in the in the last fifty years, especially. Um, and we've got countries like China and Indonesia emerging as these really strong economies and that's making a difference to millions and millions of people. But the goalposts have changed slightly because um, we now know that, well, not that we didn't know it before, but it's become more more critical that we, our resources are limited. So we can't just keep making more, doing more, earning more, this more, 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 more. We need to somehow um, make that work with the resources that we've that. got. Yeah. And it's starting to happen because yeah. actually, I mentioned water in agriculture, but it's actually we're all we're all using less steel in our lives now. In the West, we're using less fuel. We're living better with less. Funnily enough, yeah. the statistics actually show that. So don't please don't hear me saying yeah, that these no, are not absolutely. serious issues. Yeah. But I just I noticed Paul Kelly, who's a very senior writer in Australia, of course, said the other day that in certain elements of the community now, you're starting to hear clim uh, climate change um, uh, catastrophism being linked with capitalism. You know, capitalism is the cause of climate change. I think it's much more complicated than that. And if we're not careful and link the two, we will actually damage our ability to respond. That's a personal view. And and, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouths. But um, back to uh, this whole uh, issue of doing more with less. One of the things that strikes me and really worries me as a farmer, and in fact, we held a conference on it a couple of years ago, is the question of food waste. We know an extraordinary. So if agriculture is a massive producer of emissions, but we're wasting, depending on who you listen to, 25 to 45% of the food that's produced, reducing food waste is something that would be very desirable, uh, ensuring that uh, if there's less waste, presumably we can find better food for some of the people who still don't have enough, but we can also cut the whole impact on the environment if we if we waste less. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And I think it's a really good way to engage people in cities because um, I think sometimes people in, in cities ho hold certain views about agriculture being evil, about um, all the greenhouse gas that's been created and all the farmers that are creating this greenhouse gas. And yet they still need to eat and they go to the supermarket every day. And then what do they do at the end of the week? throw out half the half the things in their refrigerator. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, people say charity starts at home. And I think in terms of sustainability, it starts at home. And I think every individual in cities and countries alike has to look at the way that they're that they're using food and other limited resources. I think we could all use less in our daily lives. And, and one of the ways we can use less is to throw 
less food away, but also things like single use plastics. I think we all need to think about what we can do um, and not just uh, put the blame on things like agriculture and politicians constantly. Yeah, and also it, bring, it becomes a platform as well for a conversation about what we talked about earlier about attracting more young people to agriculture. You talked about sort of people understanding food waste, which means they can understand more about where their food comes from. Like chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows. And so talking about food wastage is a real a conversation everybody can get engaged in, whether you're a farmer, whether you're an environmental activist, whether you're a supermarket retailer. It becomes a, a platform through which we can have better conversations, more productive conversations about how agriculture can be more effective and more sustainable. Yeah, I'd also like to talk sort of along Emma's, Emma's point is that, you know, throwing out half of your groceries is not just bad for your bad back pocket, it's bad for bad for the planet but a lot of the um it's quite it's quite a complicated the food system is hugely complicated and i think it, the real power is held in the consumer um so you can put uh you can blame woolworths for having guidelines on how bendy bananas are allowed to be but they're just responding to the bananas that people want to eat if people if they carry on having straight or two bendy bananas ending up on their shelves and all the other ones have gone then they're gonna then the, that's the consumer telling them hey, we don't want those, those shaped bananas, though they taste the same. We don't want those ones. We only want these ones. That's the ones they, that's the ones they stock. That's why you have this humongous amount of, amount of um, wastage. And, and bananas is because people like them a certain way. And so that's, that's and it's coming through now. Harris Farms in Sydney has, a, has an ugly food section. I bought some two bendy bananas from Coles just, just the other week. So it's, it's starting to come through that rhetoric from, from our side of things, from the agricultural system. It's coming through now and people are going, okay, I don't mind what, what shape my banana is, I'll buy anything. And that's, so now, that, now those are coming through to the shelves. And I think that's really great because a lot of that food waste isn't even leaving the farm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's peaches being left on the ground. Tomatoes rotting because Tomatoes rotting because one, they can't be picked. Hmm. And two, they, they, they have a little blemish on them so they don't want to eat them. Sam, if I could come back to this issue of soils that fascinates you, uh, and we don't talk about it enough, and there's still a lot we don't know about our soils. Yeah. Food quality is obviously related to soils. Many of our soils around the world are becoming depleted and must be losing density and quality. Is that showing up in, uh, in the quality of our food as opposed to the quantity? Yeah, well, people talk about soils as if it's like the digestive system of the plant. It breaks down the inputs into a form that the plant can access and then put those precious nutrients into the food that we can nourish us. Uh, the narrative that soils are becoming degraded and then the, the food has lower nutrient content isn't actually that factual. Like there's a bit there, but it's overblown a bit about malnourishment of soils has led to malnourishment of the produce. So that's been overblown a little bit. Right. The science would disagree, yeah. Well, Australian agriculture, I think, is remarkable. The National Farmers Federation says that one Australian farmer feeds 600 people. It's pretty staggering. A couple of hundred years ago, it would have been one farmer feeding himself and his family and maybe one person in the city or something like that. So it's quite dramatic. And the world is evolving though outside of Australia. You've mentioned me and Ma. I'd love to hear from you uh, of your experiences of seeing agriculture in different cultures. Yeah. What struck you most about Myanmar? Uh, the, the poor farmers that we work with don't see themselves as poor farmers. They see themselves as farmers in Australia do. So when we first went over to Myanmar, we sat down with farmers and uh, we went there to help them. 
And then we asked them, one of the questions we talked about was, why do you farm? And a lot of the farmers had very similar answers to Australian farmers. They do it for family heritage. They love the lifestyle. They like sending their kids to school. And a surprisingly high amount of farmers also said, because I like to feed people. And I just found that so inspiring. I didn't say it back to them because I'm quite useless at the local language. But I said, I want to do that with you. Because, I, yeah, these people who are by the book are below the poverty line. There's people that need to be helped, but they just don't see themselves that way. And so there's such an opportunity to work with them, create shared solutions for our shared agricultural challenges for the benefit of growers and the people that rely on them in Australia and abroad. Fantastic. Emma, any international experiences that have really stayed with you? Yeah, look, one I always I always love that's quite problematic from a science point of view is is with livestock. I've been involved in quite a few projects where we're looking at different interventions and and trying to compare whether animals are are growing because of being fed a certain forage or being having a certain vaccination or something like this. So we have different groups of animals and we have one that's getting one forage and one that's getting something else and one that's getting the the standard, the control group, if you like. And then we're trying to measure over, over time if, if our interventions are making any difference. And one thing that is always problematic is that when we ask the farmers to bring the animals in for the measurement, they always bring the fattest one <laughs> because they're so proud of their animals. Um, and it's problematic from a science point of view, of course, because it biases the whole experiment and it's not really the way that, and, and we need to think of other ways to do it. But it always kind of fills me with a bit of warmth when I see how proud people are to be involved in this research and to be, um, to, to have animals that are that are thriving and, and that, yeah, it fills me with joy, that kind of thing. So farmers the world over love what they do, they love their animals. And they take pride in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess I, my experience, um, I guess touch briefly is one of the experience I had here at, at ACR um, as a graduate and I went on a, a kind of a pre-project scoping mission um, throughout Southeast Asia, we went to Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam um, and we got to meet a lot of farmers that we've worked with for many years, um, which is one thing I love about ACR is that we don't talk about our work in Indonesia, we would talk about our work with Indonesia. It's very much a partnership and we're very much in for the long haul, we're there for that little incremental increases in, in our cultural production, the system over. Um, so when I, I was in, I was in uh, Cambodia, and I was with a with an old manager of the livestock program here at ACI, I was named Verna, um, and we were going around and we met a farmer that he'd worked in, he'd done a number, number of projects in that area and this farmer had been a part of some of them, maybe not all of them, um, but he recognized Verna because Verna had been to the farm before. Um, and the first thing he did, his eyes lit up. He ran out and he, he lit, lit up because he saw, you know, the local agriculture, the extensionist that we work with and Verna, and he grabbed them both and he took them, he took them outside and he said, look at this, this is the extension I put in my house and they, grabbed him by the hand, took him out, and then you know, he brought out his new motorbike, and then he said, wait, he ran off, and a few minutes later, he came back with his son in tow, and in the school uniform and everything, look at my son. Um, you know, it was just this intense pride for, um, for the, basically just like the work that we had done with him and his neighbors to improve their system. It was a forage project, so now he, he was not selling two cows a year, he was selling six, and so his, his, his boy was, his, he said, his boy, my boy's well fed, he's at school, um, he can get to school, you know, and like his, his life had been, been improved so much. Um, and and it's, it's, it was, it just said, it said to me that I'm in exactly the right place. This, this, this where, where I work and the industry I work in, it really, like, it really, really makes a difference. And 
And it's just so lovely to see that. Well, all I can say is just lovely to see your passion and to know that underlying it are real skills and real abilities and the real capacity to help us find the solutions to those difficult problems going forward for us and for all global citizens, really. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having us, John. Thanks, John. Thanks. You've been listening to Environment Matters with John Anderson. For further content, please visit johnanderson.net.au.